Good morning, VCF. I would like to uh, welcome you again. If you, I'm sure you have been already welcomed. And uh, I'd like uh, to welcome you to come and look at the scriptures with me. Uh, today we'll be um, meditating on our life in Christ. But before we do that, um, let's look at Joshua chapter 5. To turn with me to Joshua chapter 5 and read it from verse 13. It's a passage that we have looked at before uh, many times. But uh, I felt that today perhaps there's something, um, something fresh for us. Look at Joshua chapter 5 and we'll read it from verse 13. Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? Are you for us? or for our adversaries, or adversaries, as you say in America. Verse 14, he said, No, rather I indeed, rather I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. No, rather I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth, and bowed down, and said to him, What has my Lord to say to his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Let us pray. Lord, we welcome your presence. We thank you, Lord, that you are here to help us, to open our eyes, to help us to understand uh, the wondrous things that you have for us. We sometimes do not know ourselves. Often we do not know ourselves and who we are. And we take on so many of the identities that have been imposed upon us. But so we ask, but we ask you, Lord, that even now that you would clear the atmosphere, clear our minds, our hearts, our spirits, and cause your word to come to us in purity, in truth, and uh, in such a way that it scatters the fog of all the other thoughts that uh, swirl around us. Come and speak to us. And we present ourselves to you and we say, Lord, you are everything to us. We are completely dependent upon you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, I believe that this passage, uh, Joshua chapter 5, verse 13 onwards, is something that's very relevant to us. Uh, Joshua, uh, as many of you know, was on his way to the promised land. And he must have been feeling very, very nervous, very, very anxious or about whether this enterprise was actually going to go forward. Uh, the last time, 40 years ago, when the, the children of Israel had tried to get into the promised land, they failed miserably. And so they had never succeeded in entering into the promises of God, into the destiny that God had for them. And so Joshua was surely uh, nervous and uh, anxious about this whole enterprise. And as he think, is thinking about this, he's approached by someone who is a man who's standing opposite him or in front of him or another translation says over and against him. He's standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand and he's a very imposing uh, person, very intimidating person and Joshua goes to him and cannot help but think in terms of whether he's for them or not. That's totally understandable. He's a man with the sword, with the sword drawn so he could be here to attack Joshua or he could be here 
to leave Joshua or to help Joshua. And he asked, Joshua asked him, asked him this question, are you for us or for, or against us? We of course learn, we know, many of us know by now that this is, this is probably an epiphany, uh, of, uh, Christ who's leading the host of the Lord, the, uh, the armies of the Lord. Joshua does not know that, but he's assumed to, to, to be able to find out. But we know that as we read this. And the question that is uh, important for us here is this. Is God for me or against me? Is God for me or against me? We tend to think about God in those terms. Is, are you for me or against, against me? And I understand that uh, in our Christian, uh, modern Christian uh, 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 community, we tend to say a lot of times, God is for you. He's not against you. He's for you and he's not against you. Um, and that is absolutely true. God is for us. He's more for us than we can even imagine. He's infinitely for us. But here in this passage, the captain of the Lord of hosts doesn't answer in that way. He says, no. He says, no. Are you for us or against us? He says, no. And in pronouncing no over Joshua's question, the captain of the Lord of hosts seems to be negating everything that Joshua is about. He seems to be negating the whole enterprise. He's negating Joshua's question, of course. But there is a certain pronouncement of no upon Joshua, upon the whole question of uh, God being for us or against us, or the captain of the Lord of hosts being for us or against us, or for him or against him. And it's almost as if the captain of the Lord of hosts considers Joshua's question actually inappropriate. It's inappropriate. He's basically saying to Joshua, you're not even in a position to ask that question. That question isn't even relevant. The question is absolutely of no, uh, no, is to no avail because I am the captain of the Lord of hosts. And so the, the, it's almost as if God's answer to, to Joshua is no. It starts with no. And I suppose that's a very discouraging thing for us as Christians in uh, the enterprise of our own destiny, so to speak, and all that, all the things that we want to do and the whole things that we hope for. To have God say no right at the outset of things, to stand over and against us or stand opposite to us and say no is not very encouraging at all. Yeah, But there it is. God, in the person of the captain of the Lord of hosts, this epiphany, says no. Neither, or some, or some, uh, some uh, other translation said neither, but I, I like the NASB, it says verse 14, he said, no, rather, indeed, now, in, rather, I indeed come now as captain of the Lord of hosts. What he's basically saying is this, your question is actually irrelevant, and I have to begin you, if you are about to follow what God wants to do, you have to understand the absolute no of your existence, the absolute negation of everything that you're going to do. He says, actually, anything about you doesn't work. It is inoperable. But I am doing a work. It's almost as if he's saying, Joshua, whatever you bring to the table can't work. First Corinthians 5, 15 verse 50 says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does perishable inherit the imperishable. You get the idea. 
the, what, what the, the captain of the Lord of Hosts is saying is this, what I'm doing is more relevant, what more, is more uh, to the point, more salient than what you, you are about. And God, Joshua has to, to come, come to terms with this. It's almost as if the captain of the Lord of, of Hosts is saying, everything that you do is to no avail. Only that which I do is of any use. And so Joshua is about to come to a place of negation. God is not being negative, but he's negating all the efforts of the flesh and all the efforts that are particular to Joshua, my winning or my, my interests or my, my, uh, my destiny or my dreams or my whatever it is. And he's saying, you've got to start all over again. You've got to start not with you, but you've got to start with me. Because flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Are you for us or our adversaries? And he says, no, rather, indeed, come now. I come now as captain of the Lord of hosts. And Joshua falls to the ground. And what the captain of the Lord of hosts is saying is this. Your power is irrelevant. I am the captain of the Lord of hosts. It's me who is going to do it. I am going to be the one. And you follow me. I don't follow you. You follow me. I'd like you to imagine what it's like if you imagine that we are a race of people who at some time knew how to fly. Yeah? Just imagine yourself and I. We have a, 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 a myth in our human history that one time we were able to fly. And we can't fly now we don't have the ability to fly. But it has been told to us by all our fathers of the faith, so to speak, whatever faith that is, uh, that we used to be able to fly. And because we used to be able to fly, there is flying in us. There is flying in us. And so what we try to do is to try to fly based upon what we've heard. We've, we've still got echoes of that. We've lost the ability to fly. But from time to time, we have... Uh, 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 flourishes of movements in which the flyers try to fly and we talk about flying and we talk about flying and we try to flap our wing, our, our, our arms so much to so that we can fly to such an extent that our dream of flying becomes an obsession to us, okay? It becomes an obsession. Now, some people will say, nah, flying, it's just not, not even possible. We never knew, never could fly. That is all uh, mythical in the sense it's not true. And some would say, no, no, that, there's some flying. And so you, the, the world is divided into different kinds of opinions. Some believe say that maybe we could fly, but we'll never be able to fly now. Another, other people say, no, actually flying is available, but they can't fly themselves. And other people say, we, no, we never, that flying was never part of, 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 of ourselves. And then there are a few people who say, no, flying is in us. And so all through history, we see people flapping their hands, flapping their hands, flapping their arms, trying to fly, but not being able to fly. And then someone says, well, actually, we can't fly, but there's somebody inside us who actually is a flyer. And if you can let that person inside us fly, you will do it with great ease. And it doesn't come with flapping your arms. It's another way. And then suddenly we see 
that everything we've known about flying is firstly wrong, secondly, partly right, because we have an inkling of flying. And since somebody comes along the way and he just flies, and we watch him fly and we think, how come he can fly and I can't fly? And he says to you, he says to the rest of us, it's really quite easy. It's quite easy. But you don't fly from your arms. You actually fly from your heels. You just think. And as you think, the fly inside you is actually going to fly through your heels. And he does it. And he does it. And it seems so easy to everybody. And everybody else is still, still sweating and straining and straining, trying to fly with their arms and they can't do it. Years ago, I was a Christian, and uh, I had lived for 20 years, never experiencing any supernatural connection with God, any sense of miracles, and any, any special things happening. We just tried to be faithful to apply, to, to, to apply the Word of God, to obey the Word of God and all that, but nothing really happened much in my life, so I've never seen anything like that. Any, any miracles. We, I've read the scriptures, but it's almost as if my, me and my church had this little secret that we wink at, that even though we talk about supernatural things and God being around and God doing mighty signs and wonders and we even sing about it, we couldn't really do it. We couldn't really believe in it because it never happened. And it's almost as if we were just flapping our arms trying to believe that these things were there. But our real experience, everybody knew. We looked at each other, we winked at each other, and we said, well, it's not re- it doesn't really happen. Even though we sang about it, we read about it, we read about David and Goliath, and we read about the miracles of Jesus in the, in the Bible and all that. And we never had, never, never, never really could experience. And then, when I was in college, uh, sitting, just before my, sitting for my exams, my parents came back really excited from a, a special meeting, and it was a charismatic meeting, and they told me, my gosh, God is real. We read about Him, we sang about Him, we tried to practice all the things about the Bible, but we have actually saw miracles happening. And I remember my mom told me, I saw a person was blind, his eyes were open, and he could actually say, I saw it myself. And I thought, wow, is this, this changes everything. I always believed that God was there, but I thought of him as more in heaven than on earth. And then I thought, you mean God is alive here on earth? He actually does this? You mean when the Bible was, 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 was completed, when the canon was completed, it wasn't that the miracles were, were passed? No, she said, I saw so many miracles taking place. And I saw someone even speaking in tongues. And I thought, what? Those things are not supposed to happen anymore. But she said to me, but we read about it. We talked about it. We sang about it. How come we don't believe it? And this is what I began to realize. I began to realize that my Christian life was not normal. It was subnormal. And not only that, my, my faith, my experience of the Christian life 
was something that was lacking in something really, that was really lacking in a very, very basic way. And the more and more my parents went for these charismatic meetings and all that, the more and more they would come back, and basically they would come back with full of stories about things that were spoken of in the Bible, in the Gospels and in the Acts, actually coming to pass in Kuala Lumpur every day. And I thought, there must be some special people that are being used. Some special flyers who had this special ability to fly, to be able to do these things, but not the rest of us. And so I thought, maybe that's, that's what it is, that God sometimes chooses some special people to do great things, and the rest of us, we just follow the Bible, and we just, we just try to read the Bible and be faithful to, to, all, to, to God in, in these ways. I think that the reason why the captain of the Lord of hosts said no to Joshua was because he was saying that the world is completely disordered in, in all its efforts to do anything divine. I think the no, a very big no, a very solid no, a very emphatic no that the captain of the Lord of hosts uh, uh, enunciated to Joshua is a no that says the world and you, Joshua, are disordered. The fall has caused such a brokenness in you and your own expectations and and what you are able to do that the only way in which you are actually going to be healed, be able to, 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 to experience flying, so to speak, is by pronouncing a no on everything that you've been trying to do before. I think the starting point of our Christian life is a no to all of the flesh. And I think the problem that we sometimes have in, in the Christian life is that we think that the Bible can be applied by our flesh. That the words of Scripture and the words of Jesus and the words of God can actually be experienced and tasted by our flesh, what the Bible calls the old man, the body of sin. But we've been looking at Galatians chapter 1 and chapter 2, and we've been looking at the new covenant through these past few weeks, And we've been seeing that there is something that is amiss in the way in which we tend to receive or appropriate the Word of God. What we tend to do is to appropriate the Word of God as if we are not disordered, as if we are not messed up, as if we are not fallen. And so what happens is this, we've been trying to apply the Word of God and get the insight from the Word of God straight into, appropriated into our old man, the old person. And what God is saying through the cross is that judgment has to be pronounced on all our fleshly efforts, on the works of the flesh, and especially especially the old man. The old man is not able to live at God's highest at all. And the presumption that Christians can sometimes have is that the word of God can be applied too cool, just directly into our flesh. And what we've been talking about for the past weeks has to do with the fact that there is a no that has to be pronounced upon all our efforts 
to be good, to fulfill the law, to be able to do missions, to be able to work the works of God, or to be able to be of any help to anybody because of the fact that we need to understand the utter disorder of our universe, of our earth, the utter disorder of human flesh. So much so that we get an understanding that even the good things we want to do, even the, even the, even the, the, the morally right things are tinged with sin. And because of that, you cannot look at things as they are in the world and think that that's normative. What is in the world that we see is disordered. And when God says no to these things, He's not being negative. He's saying, no, there's something more. There's a greater existence, there's a greater dimension of life for you and me. And as long as you try to live the Christian life, like Joshua, in the flesh, you will fail. So it is not a matter of God helping your enterprise in the flesh that matters or not, or, or, or blocking it. What God is saying, what was God was saying through the captain of the Lord of hosts is this, I am doing this. Only I, the resurrected Christ, can do the works of God and defeat your enemies. You can't, and even if I help you to do that, it's not going to be the way. Only I will do it, not you being helped by me. And I think that is part of the problem with the Christian uh, world today, is that we want God to help us. That's why we talk about God being for us, rather than against us. He is for us. But there is a way in which the efforts that our flesh uh, continue with, are not what God is for. God is wanting to be God to us. Amen? And so, this is what, what Joshua has to understand. Now, Joshua begins to realize, as God begins to educate him, begins to disciple him and train him, in a very loving way, he, he, he begins to realize, okay, the first thing for me is to worship him. And he falls down, and he worships God. Verse 14, rather, no, rather I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord, says the captain of the host of the Lord. And Joshua fall, fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, what has my Lord to say to his servant? What Joshua is saying is this, the first move has to be from God. The first move is not from me. All I, have can, all I can do is to just stay below, stay in worship and bow before you until you tell me to move. Until you give me leave to get up. I, in all my, with all my brilliance, my intelligence, my gifts, my talents and all that, and all my, all, all my particular things that I bring to the table, my particular experience, my own lived experience, my own ethnicity, my own education and all that, it can't be used. I bring it before you and I cast it down before you and you have to start. And Joshua got it. He, see, he says, what do you have to say? His prayer did not begin with his praise, his, his words. Thus his prayer had to begin with God speaking to him. And so even in prayer, what we realize is this, there comes a point in which all the things that we say to God come to an end. And we can only begin, proceed in prayer when God speaks to us. Right? And so the captain of the Lord said to Joshua, Now remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you, sta- you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. And that's how the chapter ends. It's very abrupt. All, all you have is Joshua removing his sandals and he just stays in that position. By the time we come to chapter 6, Jericho is already being, is, is being approached. 
But somewhere between five, chapter 5 and chapter 6, you, we, we have to leave Joshua there in the sand, in the dust, with his sandals removed. And what God was saying is this, the sandals are preventing you from having any sense of the presence of God, of the holy. The holy is being blocked from you by the sandals. The sandals have to do with, I don't believe just distractions from the world. I don't think that the sandals are just our experience. I don't think that the sandals are sinful things necessarily. I think there's a minor application, yeah, and I think, yeah, sure, sure, all these things apply. But I think the sandals are something much, much more uh, basic. It was the sandals that caused Joshua to never be able to have a sense of God. Because the flesh cannot sense God. Our feelings cannot sense God. Our emotions cannot sense God. Many people are hoping they can sense God by their feelings. Their feelings are what their religion kind of amounts to. We are a society in which feelings are everything. We validate things if we can feel it, or we can, if our emotions can actually um, emote them or, or feel them. Our emotions, our feelings. We are people who sense the divine through the flesh. And as a result of that, many people are just flapping. They can't fly. And they wonder why some people can, and they just can't. Today, I'd like to talk to you about just one verse of Scripture that will open up our senses to God. Okay? So, see this? The captain of the Lord of hosts says to Joshua, remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. It's almost as if uh, Joshua and, and actually earlier on Jacob have to come to understanding when they realize that they are incapable of apprehending God. And I want to put it to you that sometimes we can try to apprehend God through our flesh, through our soul, through our person, through the collection of in experiences and emotions and studies that we've had. And what I feel is uh, the judgment of God is this, an absolute no to those. Because you cannot live the Christian life in your flesh. Um, as I said, as I, as I, sh- I quoted in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perish, perishable inherit the imperishable. Please turn with me back to um, the, the book that we've been looking at, Galatians chapter 2. And today I'd like to just touch on just this one verse um, to give us something to go on, okay? Chapter 2 of Galatians. We'll read it from verse 19. Okay. 
For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. And I hope you can memorize this verse, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. That's the no. That is the no that God pronounces on all of creation. All of creation that has been marred by the fall, that has been broken, that has been disordered. So that I might, sorry, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. In some ways, the whole Old New Testament can be summed up in that one verse, Galatians 2.20. And if you can remember it, it will take you to many, many places in the spiritual life. Galatians 2 verse 20. I'm going to read it again. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. What does it mean, I'm crucified with Christ? We've been talking about that for, long, for, for, for the past few weeks. I'm crucified. The starting point of our Christian life is not that we, in, our, in ourselves, in our, in our personality, in our own person, in our own ego, can receive the things of God. We cannot receive it. The body of sin is completely corrupted. It's completely hopeless. The God who comes into your life doesn't come into your life and my life to repair the old. That doesn't happen. He doesn't come to heal the old. He comes to do away with the old. Because the old, the life of the flesh, the, blood, the, the, the body of sin, cannot, is not capable, no matter how good it is, to be able to live at God's best. It has been broken and has been marred by sin and there is no way it can actually live according to the, 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 the dictates of the spirit. It says the, the, the flesh wars against the spirit. The body of sin is a body that is incapable of living in God's eyes. Even when we do ministry things, even though we do loving things, even though we do, do things that are faithful, full of justice and all that, there is sin in it. It can't help it. It is, it is marbleized with sin. It's, it's, it's racked with sin. So much so that no matter how much we flap our arms, what God does is that He, pl- he pronounces judgment on the works of the flesh. The works of the flesh cannot inherit the things of, of the kingdom of God, which is the life of Christ. The life of Christ does not flow into the old man. It doesn't flow into the old person of sin. It does not flow that way. It only flows through the new person that is in Christ. So when Paul says, I am crucified with Christ, what he's saying is this, your life, no matter how intentional you are at holiness, no matter how much you try to, to be true to God, is not capable of it. And what you want to do is not to try to keep on kind of massaging it, making it better, exercising it, putting makeup on it, you know, dressing it up and all that. No, you have to cut it loose. It's like a, it's a, it's a dead body that you drag, you and I can, I've talked about this before, drag around. And the thing about a dead body is that it stinks. And what, and, and, and it's almost as if many Christians are trying to do whatever they can with that dead body so that that dead body can actually live the Christian life. It's a completely impossible. We saw in, uh, those of us who are meeting on Wednesday, we saw that in Galatians chapter 6, you cannot present the old body to Christ. 
You have to present as risen from the dead that which was risen from the dead. You can only present the resurrected body, the resurrected life to Christ, to, 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 to God. Um, Galatians chapter 6. The, the thing about it is this. God has passed judgment and the law has passed judgment on you and me. And if you don't accept that, you will constant, constantly be living the Christian life from the other side of the cross. You'll be all constantly trying to hope that by some kind of law, by some kind of um, 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 policy decision, or some kind of psychological help, you can you in your own body of sin can actually have victory over sin. It's impossible. That is why the Christian world today is full of all kinds of therapies and things which actually are helpful, but don't solve the problem. They don't solve the problem the way in which the captain of the Lord of Hosts described it, uh, with a a resounding no. When Christ died on the cross and he was crucified, he did not crucify just to take the punishment for your sin and my sins. He didn't get crucified just so that we can be we could heal the old body. He, he carried upon himself your dead body. He carried your life, body of sin, your curse, your willingness, your, your, your need to follow the law and to, and to follow all the world's requirements of you to be a good and cool person. He carried it upon himself and he became a curse. He took the curse of all that that need to be cool. He took the curse upon all the need to be, the, to, to be seen as virtuous in the eyes of the world. He took the curse of all of our efforts to be acceptable. He took it upon himself and he became a curse for you and me. He took your curse upon me. He took your dead body, your old body, the, the, the body of the, of the flesh, and he placed it upon himself and nailed it to the cross. He, in other words, he crucified it. He didn't heal it, he crucified it. And Christians who today don't understand the cross, they are constantly um, trying to live the Christian life as an improved, uh, dolled up uh, version of themselves. And because of that, Christians are constantly trying to find out, I want to find myself. I find myself. You can't find it there. You can't find it. You are not in your old person of sin. You are not in your flesh. No matter how many talents you have, no matter how much brilliance and genius you have there, that is not you. That is actually corrupted. It has, it's completely hopeless. That is what Joshua was supposed to, to understand. When you come to things of the kingdom of God, you want to things of supernatural stuff, you cannot start with your flesh. You cannot start with yourself. You cannot start with your past. You cannot heal it. You cannot fix it. You cannot do anything to it. You cannot uh, uh, rehabilitate it. It is dead. And that is why Galatians chapter, chapter 2 verse 19, for through the law I died to the law. See, the law condemns you anyway. The law that you're trying to, to follow, the coolness that you're trying to follow, the, the societal kind of uh, correctness that you are trying to follow, it will condemn you. It will condemn you because you will never be able to redeem yourself. You cannot redeem yourself because you don't have the ability. It's irredeemable. And then he says, but I am crucified with Christ, which means this, you are cut loose from him. He doesn't have to cling to you anymore. You doesn't, sin doesn't have to cling to you anymore. What God doesn't do is to heal the, the sin in you. 
He actually separates you from, from who you were. That's what it means when he says, I'm crucified with Christ. Amen? It's the best news. You cannot have a, a, a yes until you have that no decisively upon your life and my life. And we, and we can't. I, I include myself as well, of course. Um, and so, may I suggest to you that the sandals are not just distractions to the old man. There's distractions or no distractions, the old man still can't, can't, can't make it. The sandals are not worldly things. The sandals are you as you were in the flesh. The sandals have no ability, no capacity to sense the holy. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. I love that. Because you see, negative though this may, be, may seem, it does not mean we are not living. And sometimes people criticize Christians to say, well, the Christians are all about crucifying the flesh and, and negativity and all that, that, but you still have to live. And Paul says, nevertheless, I live. Woo. Nevertheless, I live. It's no, it's no negation to nothing, to passivity. It is something living. But yet not I, Paul says, but Christ lives in me. Which is, there is another life that is beating. The life of the flyer in us. It is not the life that we are trying to rehabilitate. It is the life of another one. And I've said this before and I'll say it again. This is the work of the cross. The preaching of the cross has to do with the fact that the life of God is a resurrected life, not the old life. It's not an improved old life. It's not a better version of the old life. It is the new life of Christ. It says, but Christ lives in me. Christ lives in me. Does that mean, do you know what that means? It means that there is somebody doing stuff inside you. That Christ is living in me. There is someone who is living in me. And I am not obligated to the old person anymore. I'm not obligated to those memories. No matter how bad those memories, no matter how traumatic those things are, and we, we, we never want to uh, uh, minimize the effect of those tra- traumas, but we are not obligated to get to that, to consider that our, our identity. We are no longer identified with that person who has sinned or who has been abused or who has been marginalized or who has been crushed and broken and wounded. We are no longer obligated to that. There is one who is in me. He says, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. That means I'm not passive. I'm not dead. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not nothing. But Christ lives in me. Wow. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? But Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, this is important. And I just want to just give a little bit of uh, practical teaching before we close, just so that you have, you have, we have ways in which we can kind of have handles you see, the thing is this, Christ lives our life in, in us. But that life is not emotional. It can be, cannot be found by just looking at your emotions. It's not just mental. It's not just thought. It is not just our motivations and our passions and our proclivities and our, and all, and our, our desires. It's not that. 
if you try to look for God in you, in those indicators, these senses, you are going to find that you'll just be thrown back upon the flesh because the spiritual life is spiritual. It is not emotional. If you look for emotional indicators for the presence of God, you'll be sent looking to sense the presence of God and you will confuse the sense of the presence of God with God or with the presence of God himself. Many Christians, especially in this day and age, in this, this, this 21st century, validate a thing because they can feel it. It used to be that people validate things if they can logically understand it. Both are two versions of subjectivity, whether it's with your mind, you subject reality to your mind, or emotions, where it's subjectivity in which you subject everything to your emotions. I must feel it. If I don't feel it, then I don't feel that there's anything. So many Christians say, I I didn't feel the presence of God, so the presence of God wasn't there. I've got to tell you that when Christ comes into your life, the first thing he does is that he joins his spirit with your spirit, and we become one spirit. And Christ is alive, comes upon us, we become one spirit. Our spirit is, 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 becomes in Christ, is hidden in Christ. But our spirit is not our emotions. It is not our feelings. It is, if you want to try to detect the presence of Christ through your emotions and feelings, you'll be using your sandals again. Because those things are not indicators of God's presence. A spiritual life is spiritual. It bypasses the thought. It bypasses our emotions. It bypasses all these things. I didn't understand that, you see. So when I tried to follow the charismatic movement, and I tried to pray for people, I tried to pray really hard. Or I tried to use my mind to sort of imagine healing and all that. And nothing happened. I pretended that something happened. But nothing really happened. And sometimes we, we, are, we, are, we, are, we, are, we are praying for people or praying for things and we, and we hope that these are the indicators. And what I want to say is this, God puts an end to that. That is part of what's being crucified. That criterion, those criteria of God's presence, the sense of God's presence from our own sensory uh, abilities have to be put to death. They are crucified. You don't go by that. And if you want to start a Christian life in God, you've got to cut yourself off from that. You've got to start it on a proper foundation. And the proper foundation has to do with the fact that God is real and He's objectively real. He's objectively real. That means He objects to your subjectivism. he, He objects to you or me subjecting Him to your thought or your emotions or your feelings. He is not that. He, he objects to it. The word objectum is that they're objecting to our own subjective kind of putting him, him in our, our little frame or in our little box. He becomes, he is who he is. And because of that, in order for you to understand him or to be able to move with him, you have to bow down like Joshua had to do. He had to bow down and worship until God and the Holy begin to permeate and begin to touch and begin to call up and begin to um, um, and drop particles in there. Until he does that, you have to wait on him. Waiting is the, what Cindy often calls, the wardrobe in C.S. Lewis's Narnia. 
is the wardrobe between the, the world of, of, uh, of a conventional sense and the spirit realm of Narnia. The wardrobe is the place of waiting, where in our waiting, we are humbled before God and we realize that no amount of praying or singing or, 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 or jumping around or, 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 or turning around and shaking it all about will do anything. It is in this waiting that we begin to allow God for as long as He takes. We are at His pleasure to change and to, and to, and to, and to, and to bring forth the life that this new man in Christ, new, new woman in Christ is. Only the new person in Christ can sense God. But when that new person is now presented to him, and waiting upon him. Watch what takes place. You don't subject God to your emotions. You do not subject God to your logic. You less wait before him. And he will come in objective solidity in such a way that he will reveal himself. And when it happens, you'll be surprised how, apart from being emotional it is, uh, a few days ago, Zephy was telling me something of an experience of a God thing. She was just telling me, um, she and I, uh, and actually our family, uh, uh, sometimes listen to Gregorian chants. And there was one Gregorian chant that was uh, playing for her. And she was playing that Gregorian chant. And she was doing her quiet time. And the Lord gave her the Psalm, Psalm 45. She was reading Psalm 45. And as she was reading Psalm 45 and listening to God, uh, the, the, CD, the, 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 the MP, uh, uh, what do you call it, MP3s or whatever, was playing. So it's this album on Gregorian chants and all that, called Illuminations. And then as she was reading it, one of the chants it was called Gradual and Alleluia, came up. And her heart sensed something there, and she, she, couldn't, she couldn't quite describe it uh, in a way that I can repeat it to you, but she said, I felt something very deep in there. It wasn't emotional, it wasn't mental, it was not cognitive, but it was something that was a connection. It's hard to describe, because it's of the spirit, right? Because it bypasses the mind, bypasses the emotions. And she looked it up. And true enough, as she looked up the translation from the Latin, it was basically Psalm 45. And she was saying, isn't that cool, God? God was actually witnessing in my spirit what I was reading in the, in the text of Scripture. And what, I, what I'm trying to say is this, the way in which spiritual life works is that it's not emotional. It's spiritual. And you find it's, it defies the categories that we tend to box God into by looking for feelings. And I have found also in my own self that when Christ is living in me, or he says, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, but Christ, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me or lives in me. He's living his stuff in me. He's showing me things. He's doing things in me. I need to have a different category for Christ 
doing things in me. And I found that again and again, when praying for people, while preaching or doing ministry, it is never, almost, almost never how I feel in terms of faith. It can't be felt. I do not trust my own flesh to be a true indicator. Sometimes, by fluke, my flesh does feel it. That's because the spirit has permeated. But, honestly, most of the time when healing takes place in people, I feel no, no um, uh, perceived difference between when I feel full of faith or not full of faith. It's almost as if I have to pray and assume that it's Jesus praying. For several weeks in a row, we saw many healings taking place during soaking time. And I can say quite comfortably that in all these healings that we saw, I did not feel any particular feeling or any emotion of faith. Because faith is not what's felt necessarily. It bypasses that. Now, if you are willing to go by that, go by the word of God, by the confession of faith that Christ is the one who heals, that Christ is in us, Christ is living in me, right? But Christ lives in me. He's living his healing in me. Then when I pray, I'm just a channel. I'm just somebody who's effaced so that Christ does the thing. So that when we pray even, we don't just pray our own things, we're just full of our own things that we want to pray. We at a certain point efface, pull back, listen to Him, stay in Him, be more aware of Him than ourselves or our own perceptions, and then let the Holy Spirit pray. That's why Romans chapter 8 talks about the fact that, um, that uh, the Holy Spirit prays with groanings that cannot be uttered. This is not your prayer. It's not my prayer. I'm not praying it. I'm not groaning. It's the Holy Spirit that's groaning, but it sometimes comes, comes up in a perceptible way. Does that make sense? There's a way in which we need to know that so the spiritual life is not essentially emotional. It's not a felt thing. It's not even a sense thing. It is a spiritual thing. It is spirit, which is quite apart from our subjective feelings about it. Now, when you can disciple your feelings in such a way that you don't let them take the lead, what happens is that in the quietness of waiting upon God, there comes a point where everything, all of the noise, all of the feeling begins to become uh, um, 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 quiet, become silent. And the place of prayer is silence, where God has silenced those places. Now, i got to say that you have to be willing to wait on Him because waiting in Him is something in which God is being given the space to calm us down. Not we doing it, but when we wait upon Him, the action is God's action. When I wait upon Him, I set my heart towards Him, I worship, I submit to Him, I respond to any particle that He puts in my heart. If He says, repent of this, repent of that, or change this, or anything. I just respond. As I wait upon him, the power of the flesh begins to be burned down, begins to be destroyed. 
waiting upon him destroys the power and the presence of the flesh. It is something that he does. You don't get an A or a B for waiting. Waiting is a verb that refers to God rather than God's work. Of course, we are doing, that, doing the waiting. Yeah? And so he says, It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. By faith in the Son of God. So that I live this life in God by faith. By faith, what does that mean? Well, first of all, I agree with God that He is in me. I agree with God that He's the dominant one that he's present in me. By faith means, faith comes by hearing. So by listening, by listening to him. Now, if I'm too busy for that, or I'm too noisy for that, then I'm not really living by faith. Because faith requires a place for listening to God. And if you're willing to give him the time, he will do the rest. That time is not a time in which you have to do a lot. You are here giving the time to God because He's the one who's going to live His impressions upon you, His, His word upon you, and His uh, inspiration. It'll be amazing the stories that we will hear back in the next few weeks, uh, if, if you'll practice this, about how in the waiting you experience what it is that the Holy Spirit brought to silence in a way that you could not do by yourself brought to silence your thoughts, your emotions, your anxieties, your fears. As you do that, what happens is that as all these things come to silence, what emerges is a little particle, a little word, a little impression, not emotional necessarily. You may touch the emotions later, but not necessarily that. And as you do that, God begins to flourish in us. Let us pray. Try to memorize this. I have been crucified with Christ. Yet it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Let's pray. Praise you, God. Jesus, we want to thank you for pouring out all your life for us. We want to thank you for being the one on the battlefield that took our Jericho, God. We want to thank you right now for being the one that helped us, God, to take off the sandals from our feet. We want to thank you you're doing that right now because we cannot do it ourselves. We cannot fly to you by ourselves, come to you by ourselves. We need your Holy Spirit that you poured Amen. out right now. We thank you for your promise in John 16 that when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you, he will lead you to truth. So we welcome you right now Amen. to lead us to the truth of this and to the truth that we so desperately long for in our world, Lord God. When we can't think it through sometimes, when we don't hear it, from others sometimes, 
I thank you right now that you are guiding us to a revelation of what you are saying even today. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for unconditionally giving yourself to us and loving us and giving yourself for us. Our minds can't even take it in that you are given for us, that you are our life. So even now, Lord, we let go of, we surrender, and we cut off our attachment to the egotistical life of the old man or the old person mm. of, this, of the flesh. Yes. Our own agendas. The part in us that's always the center of things. We give up our obligations to pay back for all the things that we have failed you in. We give, up, we give back to you and give up all efforts to improve the old self. We cut it loose, Lord, yes. even as you have already done it for us. We acknowledge that and we receive the new life. Yes, Lord. If you've never received the new life of God into your life and if you've never surrendered the old life to God and let him cut it loose, I want to invite you to receive this new life into you, into yourself. You cannot live the Christian life successfully in yourself. It is utterly impossible. Just as impossible as flapping your hands will make you fly. But he has done something that we could never do for ourselves and he has given us himself. He is now in you. And if you've never invited him into your life, Please repeat this prayer after me. Lord Jesus, come into me. Come into my life. You are my life now. I have no other life except you. I ask you that you would cut me off and forgive me for my past. I want to live for you and not for myself any longer. Come and fill me, Lord. I live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.